I was honoured to interview Shazad, a highly regarded journalist recognised as the brown car guy. His work delves into the profound link between individuals and their cars, and knowing that relationship is priceless to us as car enthusiasts. Highlighting their essential role in our everyday existence is just the beginning. Join us as we explore the captivating realm of vehicles with its insightful knowledge. It will show you a side of car journalism you didn't know existed. We were, thanks to you guys listening, in the top 10% of podcasts most shared globally, which is so impressive and means so much to me. Still, I want to set you a challenge of getting into that top 1%. So if you have ever enjoyed an episode or thought that the message from a guest was worth sharing, please send that episode to your friends. If you know someone that loves cars and is looking to get into the industry or change careers, help give them some inspiration. And speaking of inspiration, let's see what we got today. Went into a school there, a very alien situation, a very strange set of circumstances. You know, there's mixed people from all over the world. I'm completely out of my depth. It is alone an achievement. Never mm. mind trying to find a friend that's into cars. It builds a sen- tremendous sense of discipline, you know, to be able to do that, to be able to know that you can do that mm. and achieve that. But also, to, it's also part of it is to be able to relate. It is a wonderful, wonderful, um, blessed opportunity to be able to do, to do what you love as a mm. as a profession and not just as a hobby. The other thing that I really, really enjoyed doing from way, way back at school was writing. I just loved mm. writing. I just, and this is why I lay claim to being Saudi Arabia's first murdering journalist because I was the first person to actually do that. And, uh, and that sort of kicked it off for me. And that was like, oh, wow, this is something I can do. Wow, <laughs> I enjoy it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, 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 ticks every, it ticks all my boxes and I can do it and it's a profession. So when I think back now and when I look at some of the articles that I wrote at the time and I'm thinking, I go, well, we had no books, we had no magazines and we had no internet. How did I research those things, you know? I think I've always been much quicker and much more happier to adapt to new media as it came along. So decided to go freelance and at the same time thought, well, I'm used to creating content for a channel. I'll create my own channel. And so that's why I created Brown Car Guy. <laughs> and the trouble is that now if I go back to it, I know I'm going to hate it. So I'm gonna, so basically I'll have to start that from scratch again if I do it. Shazad, what ignited your passion for cars? Oh my God. Wow. We're going way back. Uh, You know what? I don't know. That's the honest answer. I don't know. And it's a very interesting question because I've often asked people like, where does it come from? And you talk to people and they say, well, it came from your dad or it came from your uncle or, you know, you you live next to a workshop or you live next to a racetrack or it was something like that, you know? And for me, it was none of those things, not a single Mm -hmm. one. My dad was never into cars. He didn't drive until we moved to Saudi Arabia in um, the uh, early 80s. And then he found he had to drive because it was the only way to get around. And uh, my brother still doesn't drive. You know, yeah. uh, my kids are not into cars. You know, there there isn't an uncle. There there isn't a family. Nothing, nothing at all. So I, the only thing I can conclude it was just inherent. It was just mm. natural. It was one of those things where you know, um, uh, when we'd be in school way back, I remember primary school. I remember being in the playground, and all all the kids are you know kick about with the football, but I'm standing at the fence looking at the road next to the school. Because I just like to look at the cars that were going past and looking at the designs and hearing the engines and trying to identify them. That's that's my earliest memory. So, yeah, it's always, always been there. There's two things that have always been constant in my life. And one is cars and the other is science fiction. So mm. these two things have just, I don't know where they came from, but they've always been there. Yeah, brilliant. And and so when it came to, I guess, finding a group in school, because like as people, we are very social. So when it came to that and when it came to finding a group of people that you connected with, was that hard at school? 
Uh, I, I, you know what? This is a whole tangent conversation, but to some extent, yes. I mean, I guess, you know, being not really that much into sports and also like, I mean, I don't know how far you want to go into this, but I grew up in Islington in um, mm. central London and near Central Street. So it's sort of between Barbican and Moorgate around that area. I went to a school called St. Luke's Primary School. And at the time, and this would be in the 70s, this would be in the uh, early 70s, I was the only Asian kid in the school. You know, so it was it was a very alienating experience. It was a very isolating experience. So straight away, you know, I was, uh, you know, with, with a handicap, if you like, you know, you, you just feel like very isolated and, and it's very, very difficult. And, you know, the friends that you do make become very good friends. So, you you know, yeah. you keep them, you know, you keep them close to you. Unfortunately, I've lost contact with the friends I had at primary school. But throughout the years, I've tried to maintain contact with friends that I've had. But um, so just finding a friend is alone an achievement never mm. mind trying to find a friend that's into cars so by way of another example to that in 79 so i would have been about 11 years old at that point uh, as i've already mentioned my dad moved to saudi arabia so we all moved to saudi arabia and uh went into a school there a very alien situation a very strange set of circumstances you know there's mixed people from all over the world i'm completely out of my depth and there was a kid there also in my class from uh, also Asian, but from Canada. And he was also mm. like thrust into this environment. And the great thing was we were both into cars, you know. So it's, we straight away hit it off. You know, we'd be the troublemakers at the back of the classroom with our model cars and the, inside the desk playing, you know, with those all the time. And um, and till now we are buddies. So he lives yeah. in uh, New Jersey. Um, I mean, over here, obviously. But um, but yeah, so he, friendships come out of these things for sure. But Sometimes it's easy to make friends, sometimes it isn't. And I guess like you could say at the time, being a bit more of a nerdy, geeky type of person because A, I was into cars, B, I was into science fiction, doesn't really help your social life that much. But I guess, you know, when you do find friends, you you end up keeping them for life. Yeah, no, it's, it's brilliant. And it's it's hard though, isn't it? Because like, I mean, I, I haven't had it to the extent that you've had it, but like certainly when I came to find friends at school, it was, I, I mean, I only wanted to talk about cars. Like I didn't, yeah. for some reason, I wasn't trying to fit in. Like I wasn't trying to go along with the crowd. And so, yeah, I had a very small limited group of friends and that, but it was all, you grow bonds, which are stronger than other people because you are interested in the same things and you do talk about like the future and where you be in that sort of time. And so it's very very strange because on the one hand, that is absolutely true. And I agree with Mm. you. And, and, you know, you, you try to seek out people with similar interests, you know, so whether it was comic books or science fiction or cars or whatever, but I have to say, like, one of my longest, longest standing, close, close friends at the moment um, doesn't actually share any of my interests. You know? so, so sometimes it, it happens like that. My wife, for example, I, I guess she's a little bit into cars now because, you know, she's been with me for 25 years or whatever. So her favorite car is a Pagani Zonda. Not many, yeah. not many in her immediate social circle would even know what that is but she does um, because I've dragged her to shows and events and stuff like that with me but yeah it's quite difficult I think that you know I don't think it's necessarily true that you should allow the dictates of your interests or your passions or your interests or your work or your leisure activities to influence who your friends are I think friends can be found anywhere at any time mm. and I think that's the that's the wonderful thing about forging friendships yeah it is uh, so, so when it comes to you as a cat your character your personality and you as like values what did your parents instill in you what did teachers instill in you as a younger younger person that that would explain who you are today wow okay that's a, that's a oh wow we're, we're going deep today uh, <laughs> I, I don't i wasn't prepared for this I it's a difficult one that i think that you know I, 
It's a, it's a conversation bizarrely that I was actually having with my wife the other day, you know, mm. and I, I have to conclude maybe this is a little bit of arrogance on my part. I don't know. Perhaps it is. I'm sure the listeners will decide. But I have to conclude that a lot of my own philosophies and ways of thinking came from myself and from my yeah. own thinking. When I was a kid, I used to read a lot. Obviously, as I've said, I was into science fiction. I used to read a lot of science fiction. I used to watch a lot of science fiction. I guess a lot of that was molded from there. I was influenced a lot. I was a, I'm a huge fan of, of, you can probably see if you're watching this on, on visuals, you can see there's a model of the Starship Enterprise on my cabinet up there. I'm a huge Star Trek fan, always have been. And mm. I think that a lot of my philosophy at the time was probably shaped in many ways by Star Trek, you know. Uh, and again, again, I suppose... Now you're making me think now. You're making me think about things that I'd actually never thought about. But actually thinking about the fact that I was, like I've already said, the only Asian kid in the school, being mm. in that isolated environment, then coming home watching Star Trek and a bridge full of people from all different parts of the world, different colors, different races, you know, taking a ship through space. I thought, I guess maybe that's why that appealed to me. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of my philosophies have come from, from things like that. Um, yes, of course, parents um, have an influence and parent, that's very important as a parent myself. I know how important that is. Um, I think that uh, my dad's sense of righteousness, his sense of uh, dignity, his sense of discipline, I think probably instilled a lot in me. Um, so I think those things are th true. I also like, you know, I I'm a Muslim, so a lot of my religion influences mm -hmm. me a lot as well. Um, and contrary to the wide perception of islam if you like and in the media it's it's not a religion of anger and strictness and violence it's it's a religion of peace it's a religion of basically giving you guidelines on how to live your way um, live your life in a in a way that is dignified you know with decorum and you know with peace and and, and happiness for your family and your friends so it's it's, mm. it's many of those things uh, shape me i believe i mean we're just about to enter i think uh, probably in a day or two time ramadan will begin the ramadan is the holy month of fasting it lasts for 29 30 days and during that time we'll be fasting from dawn to dusk so you know, people will be like, why do you do that? I mean, again, of course, there's the faith part of it and there's the religious part of it. But the other part of it is that it instills a sen tremendous sense of discipline, you know, to be able to do that, to be able to know that you can do that mm. and achieve that. But also, to, it's also part of it is to be able to relate because the idea there, the a core aspect of, of Ramadan is to be able to relate to people that have less than you. It's, yeah. it's a fundamental aspect of it. So by, in a sense, starving yourself, and we're not really, let's be honest, you know, it's not that much of a hardship not to eat from dawn to dusk. But in a sense, by starving yourself to that little extent, um, the idea is that you can understand and appreciate the, the plight of people that are maybe, mm -hmm. you know, um, less fortunate than yourself. So I think, yeah, there's a number of factors. And it's a, I have to thank you for that question, because it really made me think about things that maybe I've not thought about before. But yeah, fascinating. Well done. No, I, I, I can't take all the credit from it. I, I get <laughs> certain questions from podcasts I listen to. And I, I think right, right. I, and I, I can take it into into a aspect of, of a passion that I have. And I, I agree with you completely with religion in the aspect yeah. that it yeah. teaches you so much about it. You see values, um, yeah. discipline. I wanted to say a massive well done and thank you for taking your time to listen to what me and my guests have to say. This podcast was designed to help people in the automotive and motorsport industries. And so if you think I've done that, please hit follow on this app. I would really appreciate it and it would help us get bigger and better guests. Yeah. Um, I mean, my theory on it and I, I won't go too deep into it is that they're just the guiding principles for life no matter what religion yeah. 
you look at all different religions I, I, they all have I, these yeah yeah i mean i completely agree with you and and i think that that's fundamental and i think that too much um is 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 perceived as negative about religion and if you don't want i mean you know i've got friends from all religion i've got friends that are not religious you know it's fine you know and if you if you don't want to be religious it's absolutely fine it's not a problem but for a lot of us like you say it gives us guiding principles it gives us an anchor and you know it just makes just puts us in a place where we know that we're not harming anybody as we go through life most mm. religions virtually all of the religions are fundamentally peaceful despite what everybody has perceptions of different religions or whatever but the reality is that when you when you boil down every single religion it's just about p peace and faith that's all it is mm. you know? and i think that you know having those kind of values and those kind of guidelines and what have you um is surely for the better you know it doesn't make things worse it makes things better you know so yeah you're absolutely right i agree with you but i think that in addition to that you have to look at the world around you. And I think that, you know, just seeing what's happening, seeing how even from when I was younger to how things are changing now, when you have, you know, political correctness was a big thing. Now wokeism is a big thing. Mm. You know, and you have to look at these things and you have to evolve with it and you have to develop with it and you have to understand the way that thinking is changing or cultural attitudes are changing. You know, you must, you must keep up to these things because if you don't, then you a start to stagnate and b you start to get very bitter because everything is changing so quickly around you and then you because you can't understand it you just end up getting very angry yeah no it's that's a very uh, yeah I, I guess i never thought about that and so so when it comes to I guess you thinking about your career because i don't know where you wanted to go with that and obviously cars and science fiction are a big part of you and and you want to explore those things so yeah. when did how 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 did your I don't know your idea of getting a job your idea of finding a finding a path finding a, a a way to earn money in this world how did you start to look at that Yeah it's interesting I mean again it is a wonderful wonderful um and 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 a blessed opportunity to be able to do, to do what you love as a mm. as a profession and not just as a hobby but um obviously I was into cars I was into science fiction the other thing that I really, really enjoyed doing from way, way back at school was writing. I just loved mm. writing. I just, because I loved, I enjoyed reading. I actually don't read that much these days. <laughs> we just don't have the time, do we? But I used to read a lot at, at that time. And I used to love writing. And I used to love writing stories, you know, in, in fiction and stuff like that. So I guess part of me at the time probably wanted to be a fiction writer. And in fact, yeah. even in my later years, even when I'd already started down the path of journalism, I actually did do a comic book writing course and put out a couple of small press comics and stuff like that because uh, I had these, uh, the, the concept or the idea that maybe I could go down that route. Mm. that never really happened but but what did emerge was obviously the opportunity to try and combine cars and writing um, and bring that together and this was again whilst I was in Saudi Arabia my dad used to work for a company that used to supply communications equipments to embassies ministries and incidentally funnily enough to newspaper outlets you know so uh, every time he used to go to OCAS that used to publish the Saudi Gazette which was one of only two newspapers English English language newspapers that used to be published back then uh, in Saudi Arabia um, I tag along with him because I, I was already fascinated and interested about these things and by doing that I started to get uh, become friends with the editor and, and more so the features editor um, yeah. A guy called uh, Ramesh Ballan, who I actually, the beauty of social media is after, I don't know, 25 years or 30 years or something, I recently got back in touch with, which is absolutely amazing. But uh, he's back in India now. But he was the editor, he was the features editor at the time. And uh, we became friends. We used to talk and stuff. And then, and I'd written a couple of letters, like letters to the editor and stuff like that. And he said, you know, I'll, I'll give you an opportunity. And actually, it was all down to him. 
um, that actually put me on this path forward where he mm. said, you know, I'll give you an opportunity. You have a, a you can have a, a motoring column, a weekly motoring column. And uh, and this is why I lay claim to being Saudi Arabia's first motoring journalist, because I was the first person to actually do that. And uh, and that sort of kicked it off for me. And that was like, oh, wow, this is something I can do. Wow. <laughs> I enjoy it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it 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 it, 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 ticks every, it ticks all my boxes and I can do it. And it's a profession. Wow, this is great. So that that's kind of where I started. Yeah. Yeah. And so how old are you at this point? I will I at that point I was pro I think I was 19 or 20 at the time yeah yeah I mean, so I was I think I was 20 or, I think I was 21 when I reviewed my first supercar which was a Lamborghini Countach <laughs> oh brilliant that's I mean, imagine that much I, I can't imagine I mean I'm 22 I can't imagine going up and just reviewing a Countach that'd be, that'd be um, yeah that'd be insane <laughs> it was awesome <laughs> I guess so. When did you? I guess, how like how did you develop your your style, your way of writing about cars? Is it just being creative with the thoughts yeah. and ideas you had and going that way, or so what was your way of doing it, and how did you develop it? It's interesting because I often wonder that myself because I look back at some of the articles back in the day when I first started writing mm. this, and this was Saudi Arabia, as I've said, you know, where even getting magazines like if you found at the time it was like Autocar or Motor Magazine or a car magazine if you found them they would always be like a month two months out of date or something they'd be very expensive and at one point i started buying arabic magazines because there was um there was a thriving automotive media industry in lebanon still is mm. and um that's where the car magazines used to come from but they were obviously all in arabic but um i figured out how to translate the tables and stuff so at least i could know the specs you know so that way i could educate myself on what the cars were what the specs yeah. were and all that sort of stuff you know um so when I think back now and when I look at some of the articles that I wrote at the time and I'm thinking, I'm going, well, we had no books, we had no magazines and we had no Internet. How did I research those things? You know, so it must have been from memory or from stuff hmm. that I'd read or I, I actually now have no idea. But coming back to the style of it, for me, the style was always see one thing I've always said about writing. And this is where sometimes I take objection to some people that are very that are great sticklers for what some people might term quality writing i mean you can you can write you can be quality all you like you can write what you can you can swallow a thesaurus and spit it out on the page and you know your contemporaries might be very impressed by that but if you're not communicating with mm. the person that you're targeting then all of that is redundant so to me it was always a case of my writing style would always be very um, informal very chatty very much like I'm talking to a mate, you know, to me, it was always about not patronizing, not lecturing, not teaching, but talking to a buddy, talking to a friend It's like, oh, have you heard about Lancia Delta? Oh, you haven't? Oh, you should know this, you should know that, you know, it was all that sort of stuff, you know, so to me, it's always been about that. And I think that mm. this is where, this is why it's helped me to obviously evolve through because, you know, as you know, media has evolved massively from that time. And this is why now I'm a content creator rather than, yeah. well, I'm still a journalist, but now we also call ourselves content creators. Um, and then I had to progress to doing digital media, you know, um, audio uh, media, websites, all of this, you know, social media, all of that sort of stuff, you know. But because I had that fundamental aspect of being able to communicate and connect with an audience, I think that that is, if you have that, then you can then translate that into different outlets as well. So I've always been compared to, I would say some of my contemporaries of my age, if you like, um, I think I've always been much quicker and much more happier to adapt to new media as it came along. 
because yeah. I just found that the fundamental way that I approach this thing can always be translated into any platform. Yeah, it's, so, I mean, so I'm just thinking about the car scenes that you've been like brought up with. So you think it looks like yeah. London, there's a lot of cars, like supercars, the high yeah. and stuff. And then you go to Saudi Arabia and the car yeah. scene, is it, is it, is it, is it what was it, was it like what it is portrayed as now? It was just yeah. flash and supercars and, and people yeah. with these high end cars. Yeah. Was it, was it like that back then too? Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting you say that. No, actually, to be honest, like that's probably more today. And the same goes mm. for London as well. I mean, if you think about, like I said, I grew up 70s, 80s in central London. Mm. You know, you wouldn't see any supercars in central London. My goodness, you know. I mean, nowadays, this is, this is where I think that supercars have kind of lost their luster for me. Because if you were growing up in London, if you ever saw a Lamborghini Countach, you would just lose it. I mean, that, mm. I mean that, that A would never happen. It just would never happen. And if it did happen, you'd absolutely lose it. You're just like, whoa, how, how, what is this alien contraption that just landed from outer space? Is Captain Kirk at the wheel? You know, yeah. you just, it just wouldn't, you wouldn't, com it wouldn't compute. Whereas I'm in Kingsbury, Northwest London. If I come out of my road here, walk down, there's a, there's a terrace house there with a Aventador always parked in front. So it's like, you know, it's not even that big a deal anymore. If you're like, oh, Aventador, whatever, you know. And Dubai is the same thing. I remember sitting on Jumeirah Beach Road, uh, having a meeting in a cafe one, one time there. And we counted three Veyrons go past in the hour. And there were different yeah. Veyrons. And three Veyrons, one of the rarest cars in the world, as we're sitting at this cafe, just driving past on Jumeirah Beach Road, you know. So, you know, and they kind of, again, they sort of, it sort of dilutes their specialness, doesn't it, if you, if, if you like. So way back when in Saudi Arabia, it's like, we're talking the cars of the 80s with the cars that, you know, over here, when I was growing up here, I was looking at things like E-types and mm. Capris and stuff like, you know, early uh, Escort, Escort Mexicos, that sort of era, you know. Um, but then when I was in Saudi, um, then it moved to 80s cars. But the other great thing about um, spending those formative years in Saudi was the exposure to more international cars and specifically to American cars. Yeah. And I think that I, I developed a a great bond and a love for American cars. So I was going in, in Saudi Arabia. It was, in fact, if you look at the hierarchy of cars in Saudi Arabia at that time, if you were really doing very, very well, you had a Mercedes S-Class. So I'm talking about mm. the 80s S-Class, which, you know, is a, an iconic shape and still rocks. It's an amazing car. And the hierarchy was literally Mercedes S-Class, Buick Park Avenue, so if you weren't doing that well, but you're doing really good, you had a Buick Park Avenue with those thick, you know, velour seats and yeah. you know, the thick carpet, you know. And at one time I used to be taken to school um, by a driver who had a Buick Park Avenue. And I remember that you would sit, nobody would be able to see this visually. But if you can imagine, he's sitting there, one hand on the wheel like that, and his leg up on the actual, so on the actual seat itself, just chilling because that's what that was. It was like piloting a yacht through the streets, mm. right? So you had that. If you couldn't afford that, you had a Chevrolet Caprice Classic. So that was the next one down on the ladder. And that, again, was a huge, great thing, which was very luxurious, a little bit cheaper, but still very luxurious. And then below that, you had a Toyota Cressida. So then you moved into the Japanese cars. Yeah. So we're going, we're going, so we're going, we've got German at the top, but then we've got American, American, Japanese, before we then go back to Europeans, you know. So to me, it was like, one of the things I found from, I used to read a lot of automotive media, as you can imagine, from the UK, because this is where I was, I was from. 
but you would always detect a little bit of a bias towards European and British metal and a little bit about, oh, what did the Japanese know about cars and stuff like that, you know. But for me, growing up in that environment, it was like, you know, the J the Japanese cars are the ones that you would drive across the desert because you knew mm. they would get you to the other side. You knew that they were reliable. And similarly, American cars, the big, the 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 the, the people that used to do the long trips to like Mecca or Medina or Tehran or across the, the desert, they would, they would take the GM GMCs, the big GMC Suburbans, you know, and they and those cars, the trim would be falling off, they'd be battered, the electrics wouldn't work, but the drivetrain was so solid on those cars. And the most important thing, of course, the ACs were so good, yeah. you know, <laughs> that those were the cars that they would use. And if you didn't have that, you'd have a Toyota, uh, Toyota Land Cruiser or you'd have a Nissan Patrol. And, you know, that's why, like, when I come back here and you, you meet off-roaders and like, oh, yes, Land Rover, Land Rover is the only way. And I'm like, oh, no, it isn't. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. you know, no, no self-respecting Arab will take a Land Rover into the desert unless it was just for a laugh. You know, they wouldn't, yeah. you know because you don't know if you're coming back in that thing, right? <laughs> but, but, but the Land Cruisers and the patrols, I mean, you know, people swear by those things, you know. So I think one of the great things about that experience, and which also then helped me when I went back to Dubai to be editor mm. of Car Magazine, so the Middle East franchise of Car. In 2006, I returned to Dubai. Um, it meant that I immediately had an understanding or an initial understanding of that market. And also, every car culture around the world is a little bit different. The approach is different. The philosophies are different. The, the cars they love, the terminology they use, you know, all of these things are different a little bit. Fundamentally, we're all car people and we can all relate and yeah. that's all great. But there's just subtle differences. So take, for example, um, the, so for example, I had a, an assistant editor, a deputy editor on car uh in uh, dubai and he reviewed a jeep wrangler right and when yeah. he reviewed it and he was from here right so and i think that it, over here the jeep wrangler had certain connotations which it didn't have over there and so his review was very tongue-in-cheek about those sort of things and all the readers over there were like i don't get it i don't get it what's he on about you know because the jeep over there is regarded as you know a tough desert vehicle you know yeah. whereas over here it had different connotations but again you got to understand that over here there's not much excuse to put a jeep or any good off-roader through its paces to really see what it can do whereas if you live in the in the middle east like in dubai even today you drive 45 minutes out of the city you're in the desert mm. you know and when you're in the desert you don't have to like it's not over here like you know you have to find a place or a permit or a place where you have permission to go no you go you drive out of dubai you see desert and you turn into the desert it's as simple as that and off you go you know and you go and play it's as simple as that so it has very different connotations. And I think one of the great things was that to be able to understand that, to be able to appreciate car culture is different in certain places. Mm. So when I was doing Car Magazine, so um, um, just to give you a little bit of an insight, if you're doing a franchise uh, magazine, you have a contract. And for example, the contract we had stipulated that we could use a maximum of 80% content from the UK edition to a minimum of 30% content from the UK edition. So the requirement was that we, we, we must have 30% UK content in yeah. an edition. And I would regularly drop below 30%, regularly, because yeah. a lot of the content that was from here, to my mind, was not relevant to the audience over there. If you're doing reviews of diesel SUVs here, or if you're doing a review of a bunch of city cars, you know, one liter cars or whatever, I'm like, this is not relevant to my audience, no. you know, so this is no good. And also, like, even if they were doing uh, reviews of SUVs here then the whole approach that they had to the SUVs was very different to how we approach SUVs in Dubai. You know, mm. so so a lot of that I would have to just throw out and and do our own content over there. So 
but on the other hand, one of the great things about cars is they bring people together. So very, uh, I think around 2010, we started, um, I initiated the equivalent of like a cars and coffee type of an event, which uh, grew and grew and grew and grew until our, I think our penultimate event, we stopped traffic in Dubai Festival City. We had over a thousand cars turn up. It was crazy. But the wonderful thing about these events was that, and also because Dubai is such a melting pot, of people from all around the world so we'd have these events and you just never know what would turn up mm. you know you'd have an emirati in a supercar or lamborghini or ferrari turn up you'd have an expat turn up in something german or whatever you'd have an american turn up in a muscle car i mean this is a little bit stereotypes here but not necessarily but yeah. then you'd suddenly have you know you'd have asians turning up in a sticker bombed lexus you know you'd have filipinos turning up in a souped up honda you know so, and, and everybody would just park together and they'd jump out and it all be chatting. And what I would find really wonderful was that suddenly people from all different parts of the world, different cultures, different points in their life, you know, different levels of income, whatever, would be just jumping out of their cars, parking next to each other and talking cars. And wasn't yeah. that fantastic? No, it's, pretty, it's a fantastic story about, like saying, the diversity of cars that I guess maybe I don't know, I, maybe our biases I, don't, I have about our industry over here. Because I, I've never been to Dubai, I've never been to these places where all these cars are so common, not common, but the, the they're more oh, well. Like, I'd have to properly look to find a Cadillac. I'd have to properly look yeah. to find a, like you say, a Crown or a Cresta or something like that. Right. So it's it's amazing to see that the sort of diversity. So having that view and the insight into the car community over there, like, what would you say is the thing that car people most like converse over? Because cars, you can say cars, but that's not really it. Cars bring so yeah. much more than that. So what is it that yeah. you find that people cling to and and can converse over then? I think to me, it's always been about the owner's connection to the cars. You know, this is, this mm. is I think, fundamentally important. Of course, as you know, that if you go to a car meet or whatever, then there's obviously different, you know, if you go to a, a, a customized car meet, it's all about cut suspensions and engines and mod, mods and what you can do. I was actually never into all of that, but that's one aspect of it. You go to mm. a classic meet, then it's all about classic cars and restorations and keeping the car on the road and stuff like that. So individually, there's different aspects of these things. But I think that what brings everybody together is their relationship with the car. And I think that that's mm. fundamental. I think that's fundamental across all car cultures, across all of the segments of cars and across all nationalities and all parts of the world. It's the stories behind the cars. So when we used to have these car meets, so even if you go to a car meet here or you go to a car event or go to like, recently I went to the London Classic Car Show and the mm. cars, you, you look at them and they're beautiful. Some of them are works of art, they're stunning. But it's not until you meet the owner and you speak to the owner that that car suddenly comes alive. You know, suddenly there's a story. Suddenly there's yeah. a reason why that owner connected with that car, why that person bought that car, why they saved up all their lives to have it, or why they desperately outbid somebody else to have it, or why they restored it, why they sacrificed all their weekends in the garage to do that. You know, this is what I think brings cars alive. It's the passion. It's the passion that they evoke. You know, a washing machine, a hairdryer, a microwave oven cannot evoke that passion the way a car yeah. can. And I think that that's fundamental. Yes, we all have slightly different interests. I've never been into the mechanical side. I've always been interested in the driving aspect. Some people are about motorsports. Some people are about modifying. Some people are about restoration. Some people are just about, you know, collecting cars. So just buying them and just putting them somewhere, you know. Um, but I, even with that, I think the core thing that brings everybody together is their relationship with the vehicle. Yeah, I guess that's it. It's people, isn't it? It's you're not, you guess, in a weird way, you're not actually interested in the car, you're interested in the person behind the car. Yeah, yeah. That's what I think that brings the story alive, you know? Mm. I mean, even with if you look at the classic car scene, if you look at, for example, like why have I got an E30 now? 
I've got an E30 because I had one before and I never completed that story with that E30. And it was a car that I truly love. So it's it's almost like immediately there's a story there. But it, I think that I think that's always the case. You know, you meet people, you go, well, why have you, you this is the question. People used to, you, I used to have these meets and people bring these really expensive cars. And they say, what does that person do? What does that person do? And I'm like, I don't really care what they do. What I care about is why they have that car. That's mm. what I care about because that's where the story is. That's where the relationship is. And that's where the passion comes from. Yeah, no, it's, it's fantastic. And I think you can get a lot about a person from the car they drive. And like you say, you're finding out the, the passion comes from the why the, the why rather than the, the what yeah. they have. Yeah. And, it, and it, I guess, it gets people that don't understand cars won't understand the fact that they're not buying the car because it's a status symbol. They're not buying the car because yeah. it's one of 20. That might be the reason because yeah. they're a collector, but yeah. they're not doing it just for that. And yeah. for you, you but, mentioned but, but, earlier. But even with collectors, you know, even collectors yeah. have a theme. They have a reason. They, you know, they, they, it may look like they're just buying cars willy nilly, but a lot of them, when you go, why, why did you buy that? Like, I, a friend of mine is a collector. He lives in Malaysia and mm. um, he bought a Mercedes SL. It was a 320, it was an R129 model. He bought 320, which, you know, I picked up for him and, you know, I've also reviewed it's on the channel and stuff like that. And one day I asked him, I said, well, why, why this specific car? Why didn't you go for a, an SL500, for example? And he said, he said, because I used to live in Hong Kong and that actual car, used to live in Hong Kong. It had the same registration in Hong Kong. And I used to walk past it every day. And and now I can afford to buy these cars. And I'm like, I want that car. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and that's why he bought it, you know. So yeah, I mean there is there is still always stories. And I think these are the things that are mo more fascinating than anything is our relationship that I ha that we have. And I think particularly when you look at um and sorry to interrupt your your question there, but but when you when you look at situations at the moment where there's increasing restrictions on how we can enjoy our cars, such as for example, um the ULA situation that's mm. happening here in, in London, that you 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 start to realize that you know when you the people who think about these things don't think about the relationships that we have with our cars and to a lot of people it's a mental health issue you know a lot of people mm -hmm. it's a therapeutic issue a lot of people it's a it's a thing that's that it's their pride and joy I, I went to the, the i covered the protests on saturday and there was a guy there um and he came up to me he said can i can i be on camera can i talk to you about my experience and i said sure he said well i've, I've got i've got a car i want to talk about i'm like okay cool and what car have you got i've got a porsche is an is a i wouldn't say elderly but a, a gentleman of reasonable maturity let's say you know and and, I, and what, what's the story and he said look i worked all my life i had a business i worked all my life this was my dream car i saved up for it i own it i had a triple uh, a quadruple bypass he had, had medical issues but finally he was able to fulfill his dream and he bought the car and he's had the car for 20 years it's his pride and joy he mm. cherishes that car and he says now i won't be able to drive it gosh the impact on him like you could you could feel it i met another guy this was great i met another sorry to take up so much time but no, then I, I, met another, uh, I met another guy People were holding up placards and you know signs and messages and all kinds of things. This guy went up to him. I said, "What? What is that?" He's, he was holding up a message from his car. I said, "You've come on behalf of your car." He said, "I'm protesting on behalf of my car." Mm. And so he brought a message, got a picture of his car, and a message. He said, "I, you know, I, I bring smiles to people's faces. Why are you not allowing me to go out onto the roads?" I'm like, "Wow, wow." That's how strongly he felt that he brought a message from his car. What mm. uh, What else evokes that kind of passion? No, it's, it's, it's fantastic and I, I guess I wanted I wanted to talk to you about ULIS as well not just because it's a thing in the UK that's it's pressing but because of that very reason is that like you mentioned earlier the relationship we have with our cars and the stories behind them are so important and, <clears throat> yeah. and it's it's weird that people because they don't have the same passion and the same 
love of a thing are very sceptical and they just see the bigger picture of cars cause emissions therefore cars need to go cars aren't the problem yeah public transport in my opinion is the problem and if you have better more efficient and frankly cleaner public transport you won't you don't need i mean we we could go into so much on this thing honestly there's so many different aspects of it but what it boils down to in my opinion is um fundamental human thing it's it's Mm. it's a carrot or carrot or the stick situation do you know what i mean and what what everybody's trying to do right now is just use the stick and it's like well where's the carrot you know you don't want me to use the car so what do you want me to do then you know how do you want me to get around there's no solution of public transport I get so I, get, I meet so many people. I go to these protests. The great thing about going to these protests is that you meet real people with real stories and real hardships, you know. And you meet people that's like, look, I live just outside the zone. My mom, my dad, my 90-year-old, whatever, lives just inside. I I drop by every day to go and see them. Now, if I do that, I have to pay twelve pound fifty every time I do that. How am I supposed to? Is I live here. There's no bus near here. There's no train. I have to walk for an hour to get to a bus. And then suddenly, all of a sudden, it's like they're not going to visit that person anymore because they don't have the convenience of doing it because it's costing them too much money. And for all those people that say, oh, it's only £12.50, I'm sorry, but do the maths. It adds adds up. You know, a lot of these guys, a lot of these people say to me, like, I go there, sometimes I stay overnight. If you stay overnight, suddenly that £12.50 doubles because you've driven it there and then you're driving it back the next day. You know, then I meet a lot of people uh, work as uh, builders or plumbers or, you know, delivery people. And they say, well, my business is, is is ruined because now I I can't afford a new van because the van prices have obviously shot up like crazy. And in fact, I've now told people in my previous video that I did, I've told people don't change your car now. It's too late now. Basically, if you were thinking of changing to a U-less car, don't do it now because two things have happened, particularly in London area. The values of non-U-less cars have plummeted and the values of cars that are U-less compliant have rocketed. There's a difference in vehicles. Some people have told me literally in the same year. So for example, you take diesel cars. A lot mm. of diesel cars at the beginning of 2015 were non-compliant, but somewhere in the middle of 2015, they started to become compliant. So the difference between one of those and one of those that is compliant, in some cases, is as much as seven grand. Same car, same spec, same year, seven grand difference. That's ridiculous, you know? And you know that that's an artificially inflated price. You know that that's not a value that you're going to get back on that car later mm. on. That's just inflated for now. So I've told people, like, don't buy a car now. If you're talking about seven grand, you're talking about, well, if... ULES does happen and you do have to pay, you're still not going to be, even if you're paying daily, you're not going to pay seven grand, right? And I said, look, yeah. wait a year, wait a year, wait for prices to settle down again and then make your move if you have to regarding cars. But right now it doesn't make any sense. And so when I talk to people whose business relies on their vehicle, your heart breaks because they're like, I don't know what to do. I don't, I don't know how I'm going to carry on. I, don't, I can't afford a new van, you know? And you just think this hasn't been thought through. And you talk about, and every time that, uh, you know, our mayor stands up and he says, you know, I'm thinking about all those people's lives that we lose, which, by the way, there's no evidence to prove the 4,000 lives that apparently he's going to save. But there is tons of anecdotal evidence of all the real people's lives that you are going to affect. I had a care worker I interviewed on Saturday, and she was like, if we can't get around to these people because we can't afford to do that, people will die. She said, that's a fact. It's as simple Mm. as that. You know, they won't get, they won't be able to take their meds. They will fall over. There'll be nobody out there to help them. They will die. Those are deaths that really will happen. So, you know, it, there's so many aspects of this that just haven't been thought through. And just to clarify, because I get this a lot on my, on my, on, on comments on my channel, you know, and, and also following up from what uh, Sadiq Khan recently said at a, at a meeting, you know, I'm not a far right nutter. I'm not a COVID denier. I'm not a climate denier. I'm definitely not a COVID denier because I had COVID when before I had the vaccines. And believe you me, it was not. It was the sickest I've ever been. It was utterly, mm. utterly terrible. So none of those things. 
I'm also not against villas in central London. I'm not. I grew up in central London. And if you look at central London, just, you know, just isolate central London and look at that, then you realize that how well connected it is. You know, within seconds, you can be at a train station or a bus stop, you know, and you can easily get around. It won't take you, won't never take you more than 45 minutes to get from one place to another, right? It's possible. But when you come to outer London, when you come to over here, it's not possible. It doesn't make any sense. And a lot of people have cars because they have to have cars, not because they want to. People are like, oh, well, people can afford to because they have the luxury of owning a car, which they don't need. No, people here own cars because they need to own cars. It's the only way they can do what they need to do. So mm. why, are you, why are you punishing them? This is crazy. So yeah, anyway, sorry for the rant. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 no, it's something that I wanted to learn more about and, and been covering your content as well, just like going through it and, and watching some of the stories that you mentioned. And it's something that I, I feel like I need to get more involved with. But that's, again, that's a, that's a conversation for a later date. Uh, yeah. but, but I mean, to be honest to... with you, if, if I can just 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 give just bear with me just another uh, minute or so. But mm. one thing I would say, I would urge all of uh, my fellow motoring journalists and uh, my fellow <clears throat> content creators such as yourself to look at this issue. Because one of the things I think a lot of people are a little bit you know, head in the sand at the moment about this, where they think, well, it won't affect us. You know, you've got the classic car community hasn't come out. Why not? Because oh, our cars are over 40 years, it won't affect them. And I'm like, what? Um, what they haven't seen is where this is going. And mm -hmm. this is and this is what actually has already been admitted by the mayor's office that ultimately the idea behind the cameras is a paper mile scheme. This is coming. It's in the documents. It's, it's there. And I've and I've put this in my videos as well. So this is ultimately what's happening. And then when you realize that okay, if the ultimate aim is paper mile, then paper mile is not going to stay in London. That's going to affect every everybody. It's going to go mm. outside. If it's successful, it will go everywhere. And when it goes everywhere, just because you have an EV or you have a classic car doesn't mean that you won't be pay charged. You will be charged. It's as simple as that because every vehicle that's moving will then be charged. So there's so many aspects of it that will affect what we do, mm. will affect the car community, will affect car culture, and will affect the motor industry itself that I am actually quite surprised that there isn't more people involved in this. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the YouTube channel, but it's quite clear to see the, the purpose of it. Um, if I'm honest with you, no, dude, my my YouTube channel purpose is not this. No, this is this is the baton that I just picked up. Uh, you know, when this kicked off last year. No, I, I mean Brown Car Guy is 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 automotive news and reviews channel. It's as simple mm. as that. So it's it's still about cars. It's still about news. It's still about reviewing cars. Um, it's just that at the moment, quite a lot of my content. Uh, I would say quite a lot. I mean, and a fair amount of it has been ULES orientated because obviously I am a Londoner and I think and I feel very strongly about this issue and I think that it needs to be focused on. So I do take the time, effort, and energy to go out and cover the protests. I am keeping an eye on all um, everything that's going on around ULES and I am doing a little bit of research and digging to try and find out what actually is going on, what do the documents actually say, what are the what are the, what is the truth behind the sound bites that we here you know so i'm trying to I'm, i am trying to find out these things but at the same time i'm still doing what i do which is you know talk about cars talk about the industry review cars uh, and run my or try to run my classic bmw e30 <laughs> uh, i mean i didn't mean in terms of like the purpose of your channel was to post you this content but you know i'm, I'm looking at sort of a, big, a bigger point of views like your channel might be the reason why you lose, you know, something happens there rather than looking oh, that, at it as that, that would be amazing if that was the case. But, but yeah, yeah. but, I, but I, I feel duty bound, you know, I feel mm. duty bound, both not only just for the, for the, not only just for the petrol heads, but for ordinary people, you know, I mean, again, you know, okay. I'm personally affected because my E30 is not compliant and I live in the zone and I'll then have to decide what I'm going to do with it. But at the same time, I have a neighbor 
So the neighbor has a, um, a diesel Honda CRV. He bought it recently, saved up to buy it. Family, it's a young family, perfect car for them. They don't use normally park down here, so it's not really used. It's normally just for school trips or for shopping and stuff like that. But you know, it's a great little great car for them. But now all of a sudden, that car is non-compliant. Now what mm -hmm. does he do? What does he do? You know, he saved up to buy that car. Wow. You know, and that you know, it's stuff like that. And when I go to the protests and I hear people and I hear what they're saying, and these are not petrol heads, these are not car people, these are just people. Yeah. You know, when when you hear their stories, and I think that as a motoring journalist, I think that you're duty bound to represent those people, to represent the motoring community, you know, whether they're car people or not. No, right. So, so I guess, why did you stop the channel in the first place then? Uh, so obviously staying with the times is clearly quite important with you and, and obviously your yeah. passion for cars is, is something that I can see is a reason for starting YouTube. But what was the point where you realized that, okay, this YouTube thing might actually help me? And well, I'm, can... well, I mean, I was, I was doing this stuff before as well, even in Dubai. So in Dubai, when uh, the contract for car magazine ended, so it was, mm. we ran a five-year contract. Um, that's what I moved out there to do. Um, then when the contract ended, me and the deputy editor then founded uh, another uh, outlet called Motoring Middle East, which is which he's still running there now. And that was we decided not to produce a physical magazine. We decided that things were already progressing very quickly. And if you think about it, the Middle East actually progresses about five, 10 years ahead of the rest of us. So in terms mm. of you know moving from print to digital media, <laughs> it was probably ahead of where we are. So even at that time, we were like, there's no point going uh, print. So we created that channel, uh, I think about 2011. Um, and that was pri primarily, initially it was a website. Then we realized we focused more on Facebook because at the time Facebook was booming, not so mm. much now, but at that time it, it just went crazy for us. And then that started to go down and then we started to see pick up on, on YouTube. So we were already doing that as well. Meantime, while I was there, I, we all, I was also a, a, a guest on a radio show. I did six years on Dubai Eye Radio, um, a car talk channel, mm. a car talk uh, show. And uh, also did a year of reviewing cars on uh, Fox uh, MENA Region TV. So this was across all the countries in the region. Um, I was doing that as well. So do doing all of that stuff, when I returned back to the UK at the very beginning of 2019, um, I initially started to job hunt. I didn't really find anything that I thought was suitable um, for somebody with my experience and skill set. So decided to go freelance and at the same time thought, well, I'm used to creating content for a channel. I'll mm. create my own channel. And so that's why I created Brown Car Guy, which to be honest now in retrospect, I, I wish I'd done earlier. Honestly, I wish I'd done this earlier. And, and just because I think that uh, it's, it's something when you start some, as you know, because you're doing the same thing and, and I wish you all the very best and best of luck with it. But as I'm sure you found as well, at this stage in digital media, it's much harder to grow things now than it was, say, 10, 15 years ago, which mm. which was, which you could say was sort of the earlier stages of, of digital media. So again, when we started Merging Middle East, for example, the Facebook page just, I mean, we had 100, I think we had 200,000 followers like straight away. It was crazy. Yeah. You, you don't see those sort of numbers now unless, you're, unless you do something spectacular, you know. Um, so it's much, much harder to grow now. So part of me is like, well, I wish I'd done this 10 years earlier because then the momentum would have taken me much further forward. But, um, but yeah, so that was, so that's the, that's where I am today. So I'm still freelancing. So I still yeah. freelance. I freelance for a newspaper, for websites, both here and in the Middle East as well. And I, and to be honest, that's probably, that's my main income. That's, you know, this, this doesn't earn me money. This is, you know, um, but the idea is that I want to turn this into something that ultimately will be, um, that will pay for itself at least anyway yeah. but yeah but the idea is to build a brand and and to create content around this brand
Yeah, fantastic. And so, and then what is your plan for them? Obviously, the plan is to create more content. The plan is to yeah. But is yeah, there a definitely. certain thing, certain things you're looking at doing, which you think that might help me? That might grow quicker. The the ideas behind that. I don't know. You know, it's a difficult one because one of the I say I would say now that one of the advantages that I had in operating in some place like Dubai is sometimes you get to do stuff that hasn't been done before mm. and you get to make a success of it. So, for example, when I mentioned the cars and coffee thing, um, we we were amongst the first to do that over there. We literally started with 25 cars at a burger place on Jumeirah Beach Road. Uh, we just decided, we just put out a thing through Facebook and suddenly 25 cars turned up, you know. And then it just grew and grew and grew. And like I said, the penultimate one that we did, we had we don't even know how many cars we had because we had over a thousand cars turn up for sure. But yeah. we knew that we'd basically cause a traffic jam all around Dubai Festival City. And um, at that point, actually, to be, to be fair, we actually got a little bit frightened because, you know, if things go wrong in Dubai, then you you, you will be held accountable. So yeah. um, so we so we actually we did one more and then we actually quit. We thought, OK, let's just quit at the top, you know. And of course, by that time, a lot of other people had started similar events as well. So we're like, OK, well, you know, that's all right. But because we were first in, we were able to grow that so quickly and it, and it was and established so quickly. And even years afterwards, you know, even like three, four years afterwards, people come up to me and say, when's the next meet? I'm like, have you not noticed there hasn't been one for three years, you know, yeah. but, but they would remember it, you know, so it was, it was one of those things. Now, when I think about over here, a lot of people said to me, why, you, why didn't you do stuff like that here? And I'm like, well, there's so many events that happen here. There's so many every weekend. There's, I mean, I live not far from the Ace Cafe. Every yeah. week, there's something going on there. You know, that it's kind of the market is very diluted, um, saturated. Sorry, saturated. And it's to me it then it's a bit difficult to formulate a strategy here in the way that I did there. I mean, when you think about what, where do I take it next? Do I stick with pod? Do I go down podcasting route? And I say that, you know, not really because such, you know, people such as yourselves are doing such a great job in it. I mean, I do do oh, podcasts, but, yeah, not, yeah. but not, but not to an extent that, you know, that I'm dedicated to it. So I'm like, well, that, that's not going to work for me. So do I do an event? Well, no, because there's loads of people, loads of great clubs doing great events. What, what you know, what, why go into that area? Do I do a publication? Nah, that's passe. That's all. That's history now. Nobody wants a publication. So it, it, to be honest, like I'm open. I'm open to ideas. I mean, I want to grow the channel. Honestly, I want to grow the channel. Yeah. I want to, you know, keep the numbers going up and, you know, do more uh, reviews, do more car stuff. I would also actually like to do more global car stuff, you know? um i'd like great my my dream would be to take brown car guy international which to an extent it is because i still have a lot of followers in the middle east yeah. and recently i did a lot of content in pakistan i happened to be there on holiday a couple of times and ended up doing a lot of content and it's interesting because there's um, um a guy here that i know that i interviewed or actually i didn't interview him my daughter interviewed him for a project she was doing about the brown car guy she's a media student so she decided to do a documentary on the brown car guy so she interviewed this guy and he said a number, and he was like, what do you like about blah, blah, blah. So one of the things he said, which really struck me, was he said that, um, I, I think the question was, what content did you really enjoy? And his response was like, I really liked when he went to Pakistan. And all of a sudden, he was surrounded by classic cars, and there was a community, yeah. and there were all these people that were talking about their cars and how they kept. And he said, he said that was a real eye-opener for me. He said, because you, you just don't think that there are these communities all around the world, and there are people as passionate as you are, and as knowledgeable as you are, and as dedicated as you are, and perhaps even more so, to the same cause that you are. And it's a great way to connect with people all around the world. You know, and honestly, I'd love to do more of that. I'd love to bring 
that to people to show that you know even in the places where you don't expect there's a there's a very famous um her name is uh, uh Noor Daoud and uh, she's a very famous drift uh racer she's brilliant yeah. you know and she uh, she I think she pretty much operates in Dubai but she's from Palestine and she learned to do it in Palestine and oh, it's wow. just like you don't think about these things you know you just think Palestine there's a drift culture yeah, yeah Jordan massive drift culture it's incredible <laughs> I guess it's just, yeah, why, why wouldn't these things happen? But just because you don't see them happening where you are, there's no reason yeah. why there isn't, like I said, drift exactly. in Jordan or there isn't yeah. a, a drag meet in Sao Paulo. Like these things, yeah. I mean, yeah. Fast and Furious, clearly there is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that might be it. And obviously but that only comes with money and yeah. resources to be able to be able <laughs> yeah. to do something like that. You can't just yeah. go on yeah. a 20, 240 continental country trip around yeah. every single country and film a car yeah. scene. But yeah. There I is, keep, there I, is keep I keep thinking to pitch it to a, some television company or something like that, you know, because I think that I think it would make a great series. I mean, I think it's been a long, long time since uh, Clarkson's Motor World. I don't know. You're probably too young to remember that. I, I should imagine, but there yeah, was, <laughs> but there were, he was he was to be fair to him. I think he probably was the first person to do that, where he literally went around the world and he said, "Look, this is what goes on." And he was he sort of you know, he was the one that made the Rainbow Shake famous because he went to Abu Dhabi and he showed all the cars at the Rainbow Shake and all the crazy cars that he would build, like the Globe car and what have you, which I've seen is extraordinary. Um, and I think that, but I think such a long time has passed since then to now. I think it would be great to go out there and to show people, you know, car culture from places maybe you didn't expect it, you know. But it, yeah. I, but you're right, it would be a TV level thing to do. So. I don't think I could, you know, unless I happen to be somewhere on holiday, I think it's a difficult one to do. But, um, but yeah, if, if anybody out there is interested in sponsoring the content, I'm happy to do it. <laughs> no, it's, it's fantastic. It's, I guess that's why the Grand Tour and the, the, the Top Gear but travels to Botswana, to yeah. Madagascar, th those, yeah. why they're so interesting thinking about yeah. it is because you get to see a different, different yeah. perspective, a different part of the car culture that you never would have. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think that it's also it's a great way to 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 unite car people around the world. I mean, to me, that's what it's to me. I think that was one of the things I really took away from Dubai as well, especially this time that I was in the Middle East. So I just thought how cars, just cars can bring people together, mm. it breaks down barriers immediately, you know, and they just, you know, open park a cool car and open the bonnet suddenly car people will will gravitate towards it doesn't matter who they are doesn't matter where they're from you know doesn't matter if they even know what they're looking at but they'll all gravitate towards it you know and how wonderful is that no it's brilliant i i completely with it like i, I don't talk about this a lot because i don't I, i'm not very self-promoting i never have been but i did a video with a morgan super three which yeah. the exact point it's a different car it's yeah. a bit quirky and yeah. yeah i really enjoyed covering it and you park it somewhere and you turn your back for 30 seconds and people are just they're doing all this and they're looking yeah. around the car and it's yeah. like yeah do what you need like yeah. ask me questions because it's fantastic you know it's interesting that you say that but um as you can imagine you know working in dubai we had all kinds of supercars and we had access to everything you know but the cars that caused the most commotion when we had them was stuff like that and mm. we had a three-wheeler for a while and we and we were just wherever we took it, we were superstars. Because you can imagine, like even in Dubai, like Lamborghinis, Ferraris, whatever. You see this thing, everybody's got their phones out. Everybody's like, what's yeah. that? What's that? You know, it was crazy. It was like you you knew what it felt to be a, a, a film star when you drove around in that because everybody was snapping. It was crazy, but yeah, fantastic cars. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people people want unique and they want different. And then just I know we're, we're sort of coming towards the end here, but there are also like five questions that I ask at the end of the podcast. Okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, you get ready for this one because the first one is the ultimate three-car garage. 
Oh my god. Actually, you can see two of them behind me. You could probably, I don't know if you can make that out, but there's a white Lotus Esprit up there, which has yeah. been my ultimate dream car since forever, since the since I saw Roger Moore dive into the uh, water in one. Uh, and there's a bullet char- a bullet uh, Mustang there as well. So there's a, uh, the green 68 uh, Fastback. Mm. Um, and then uh, what else? I mean, I have the E30 is great. I love it. I love it. I, I hope I don't have to part with it. But yeah, so there you go. There's a three car garage. Perfect. And um, the next one is you, got, you can get any car to drive around any road or track but you can only do it once, where would you go and what would you take? Oh, very good. Um, I would take a Lotus Esprit again, but I would mm. take the V8, you know, the last of the line ones. So yep. one of those. I take a V8 and I take it to the Dubai Autodrome because it's probably the track that I've driven around the most. And so yeah. I'm most comfortable with, you know, <laughs> I'm not a great track driver, I'll, be, I'll confess, you know, but I've done a lot of laps around the Yas Marina as well, but Yas mm. Marina scares the hell out of me. It's a very dangerous circuit. It's very fast. And when you go in the Marina section, it's very scary. But the Autodrome is a very giving circuit. The club circuit there, it's, it's, it's huge wide runoffs. It's a really nice circuit. So yeah, there. I mean, it's, it's funny because you you get you get you don't pick a, a I don't know a Bugatti with that like six hundred horsepower and, and choose no, to take a Brembo hatch. No, because you can't use it. Because this is what yeah. I, had, I said about supercars. It's like yes, you probably you can you can get closest on a track to understanding what a supercar is. But the 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 abilities the the I mean credit to the engineers. What they've mm-hmm. done with supercars is extraordinary. But ninety nine point nine percent of owners of supercars will never know. They will never know what that car... I mean, I've been fortunate to go around with test drivers and stuff like that. And then when you see what those cars can do, you're like, whoa. But then also you then realize that that is next level. Like, you need to be an F1 driver to be able to do that. You know, and I know that I don't have those skills. No, I mean, I just, I just don't, you know, I've 30 or oh, 35 plus years of driving cars in all countries and all conditions and, and on many racetracks, you know, but I still would say I don't have those skills. I don't have those abilities. So I can't exploit the best that a supercar can give me. So what's the point? But let me take something I can do, you know, something like, like an esprit or at least, you know, or a caterham. You can have a huge, you can have a lot of laugh in a yeah. caterham, you know what I mean? Because it's, it's accessible. You know, you, 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 could, you put a 140 brake horsepower engine into a Caterham and you'll still be laughing your head off because it would be absolutely hilarious. Well, you have a thousand brake horsepower on a Bugatti Veyron and I've driven a Bugatti Veyron. It was mm. awe-inspiring. It was very impressive, but I have no distinct memory of it. So you see what I'm saying? I don't yeah. have a memory of it. Not like I still today, I can remember, the, and I've driven a Countach, I'm blessed a couple of times, but I can still remember the first time I drove it. It's, it's burned into my memory. I can literally remember the smell, the sensations, the feel, mm. everything about it because it was such an experience. And to me, it's, it's about the experience. And if you're taking a really fast car that's really capable, if you, even a Nissan GTR, extremely capable car, but will you, will you connect with it as much as you would with something that maybe isn't as quick or isn't as capable or doesn't have as much grip as something like that? And I would argue that actually go for the car that doesn't have as much grip or as much power, you'll have more fun. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And it's one of those things where, I mean, this is the psychological like phenomenon of flow. Your brain is more engaged when you're in a flow state. Therefore, you're right. You remember yeah. things more. But that's that's a different thing. Yeah. But that's yeah. probably why that when you when you go with a car where you're comfortable, you have more fun. You remember it more, yeah. and you connect you connect more with it because your yeah. your skill level is capable of of yeah. being present. I mean, I've been in, I've, I've been, like I said, I've been very blessed and fortunate. I've been in many, many cars and I've driven cars in, in these circumstances. And sometimes I've been on events and launches and driven supercars on tracks and come away thinking, I, I didn't get anywhere close to that car's abilities, you mm. know. And, and part of you is like sitting on the, on the airplane on the way back going, 
Uh, oh, in fact, if you've got if you've got time and you can indulge me, I'll give you a perfect story. So I got to drive an F1 car back in 2006 or seven. I can't remember. 2002 yeah. Formula One uh, F1 car, Paul Ricard circuit, you know. And of course, you know, I was a bit younger then. So I went back there. I was like, eh, you know, I'm going to really enjoy this. I'm going to give it some, go hit the top speed down the straight. What's the RPM? Oh, we've restricted a little bit. It's about 15,000 RPM. Oh, I'm going to hit the limiter. I'm going to do that, you know. And the thing is, of course, when you come back, of course, they have telemetry, right? So you're in the F1 car, and actually, now that I'm doing it, I am scared out of my skin driving this thing. And I come back, and I go, "What did I do?" And you did, they, oh, you did 8,000 RPM. That was you know? <laughs> so. At some point, I must have chickened out on the straight, you know. Um, and 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 so to have that experience, but then to have the regret that oh, yeah, I didn't get the best out of it. What's the point? But if you're painting mm. me a dream scenario where I can have any car I choose on any track then I think that's something that I can really exploit and enjoy would be, for me, the best way of going about it. That's brilliant. And the next question is, if you if money was no object, it wasn't a thing that we needed in life, Yeah. what would you do for a living? Or what would you do for a vacation in that, in that sense? I'd do what I'm doing. I, re- I really would. I really would. Mm. I, like I said, again, I'm very fortunate in that, you know, I've been able to blag it for... <laughs> for 33 years i've been able to blag it and just do what i love doing so yeah i think the only thing i would say the only thing that i haven't ticked off on my bucket list is i haven't written the book so that's that's still something that you know i've done tv done radio done Mm. digital done print done magazines everything i wanted to do but i haven't written a book and uh that's that's probably on my bucket list fantastic the, the next question is then um if you had any advice to give to younger you or someone that's pursuing something with their passion what would that yeah. be i would say get started early get creating you know get creating it's like i said to you earlier about brown car guy i wish i'd started mm-hmm. 10 years earlier even the stuff that i did you know um so one of the things that i've uh, you know i i've done i did live shows i've done live shows i did I, one at one point at the dwymo show i was doing three four live shows a day you know and this is something that 10 years prior to when i did that i could never have imagined myself doing it yeah. And I guess because I was a little bit more shy, a bit more introverted, a little bit more scared and lacked the confidence to really push myself out there. And then when I did do it, I found that I could do it. And then I was like, why didn't I do this earlier? And why didn't I push myself earlier? Why didn't I seek out these opportunities? Earlier? Why did I shy away from them? Earlier, mm-hmm. You know, and I think that that's what I would say, like embrace the opportunities and push for them. You know, and create content. A lot of people are like, oh, you know, I'm waiting for a job or I'm waiting for work experience. I'm like, don't wait for anything. Get out there and create content. Just do yeah. it. You, every, we're blessed in, these, in this day and age that we've all got this, right? We've all got a camera that we're walking around with. We've mm. all got a media production device. This is absolutely incredible. We didn't have this back in the day, you know? So right now, anybody can create content and put it out there. So why aren't you? Do it. You know, if, whether you're doing this professionally or as a hobby, if you're doing it professionally and you're not quite there yet, you need a portfolio. This is your portfolio. Do it. Create content. Yeah. So, so, I mean, using your own advice, why hasn't that book started being drafted? <laughs> Very good. I like that. Well done. Brilliant. <laughs> nice one. Uh, you know what? It has. I've had several false starts, Brilliant. you know? Yeah. I've had, I've had several, several false starts throughout the years. And this is, and, and, and here's another piece of advice, actually. Um, I, I was thinking for a long time I was going to write science fiction and I kept starting it. And the thing is like other things happen and then you go mm-hmm. away. And then when you come back to it a few months later, you go, this is rubbish, you know, and then you, then you just, you know. And then most recently I, I started doing, uh, I thought I'd do something contemporary. So I thought I'd do a comedy action adventure in the Middle East based around cars. And I got to about chapter four or five with that one. And I was actually quite happy with that. I was like, ah, finally I'm getting some momentum, you know, because it's something I really know about as well. 
And then I made a big mistake. And this is the advice. Don't, don't anybody do this. I sent those chapters out to some friends. And I asked them to give me their honest opinion. And the yeah. thing was, like, some of them loved it and some of them hated it. And the trouble was that when all that came back, it just caused a moment of hesitation. And that moment of hesitation has lasted about 17 months now. <laughs> and the trouble is that now if I go back to it, I know I'm going to hate it. So, I'm, so basically, I'll have to start that from scratch again if I do it. But, and, and I, spoke to an, I actually spoke to an author about this recently. And they said, never show your book to anyone until you're finished with it. Because once you're finished with it, you can always go back and fix it, right? Mm. But, but if you're halfway through it and you show it and you get put off, you'll never complete it. You'll never, and that's what's happened to me every time. So, yeah, I've had about three or four false starts, but um, it's got to be done sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I guess, it's the same, I guess it's the same as producing a piece of journalism about a car, though. You wouldn't, you wouldn't yeah. hand into your editor a half-written no. piece about a car. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So why, right. why, I guess, so I guess yeah. that's just... But yeah, and then the last yeah. question is, should I, um, would you love most about cars, journalism, and all that sort of stuff? What I love about it, I think, again, I think what I've come to realize, I start, as I, start, I said right at the beginning, and as I started this off, it was all about communicating. Mm. And it was all about the feedback that you got. And very, very early on, I got the best feeling I ever had. I remember it was back at, um, back at the newspaper in, in Saudi Arabia. And um, I was coming down the lift with the actual editor of the newspaper. So I was a little bit intimidated because it's like, there's, there's the actual editor in the car. But he knew who it was. And he was yeah. being very polite, you know. And then he came, we came out of the lift together. And um, another Saudi came into the building. And he immediately greeted They must have known each other, whatever. He immediately greeted him, you know. And uh, because I was standing next to him, and I was kind of awkward. I was like, should I just walk away? Should I just, you know I mean? I was like, oh, was it, you know. And then the editor said, oh, and, and this is Shazad Sheikh. You know, he started writing for us. He's doing, he's doing the, the motoring stuff. And the other guy turned to me and said, you're doing the motoring stuff. I'm like, yeah. Oh, well, I love it. So good. Very good. Well done. And I'm like, you read it? He goes, yeah, every week I read it. I'm like. Well, and that feeling, if I yeah. could encapsulate, if I could you know, turn that into a capsule and give it to somebody, I don't think you'd get a better high. I don't think you'd get a better high than that. And I've always found that. And that, that feeling that you, you get when somebody comes up to you and says, oh, thank you for your content, or I've enjoyed mm -hmm. your content, or I've read your content, or I've seen your content. I don't think anything touches it. And what it does is it validates what you're doing. Because it means that, yeah. yes, you're not, you're not just in a bubble. You know, you are actually communicating to people. You are making an impact. You are having, you're making a difference. And I think to me, above anything, when people come to me and they go, I bought that car because of your review. Part of me is like, oh shit, you know, and the other part of me, is like, <laughs> and the other part of me is like, uh, in fact, I'll tell you, this actually happened to me. We were doing a bunch of stuff at the Dubai Motor Show. We were filming, we were filming stand videos yeah. for the exhibitors. So we were on the Dodge stand, uh, the Dodge Ram stand, uh, Dodge Chrysler Jeep, and uh, we were filming a video on the stand with the Chrysler people there, right? And so we were filming, and I was sitting in the back of a Ram truck. I was sitting there, and then we, we had a cut because we'd finished that, and they just said, just stay there because we're just going to check some stuff. And I'm like, okay, fine. And I noticed this guy was just hovering off to the left. He was just hovering, hovering, hovering. And then when they cut, the guy came up to me and says, oh, have you got a minute? I go, yeah. He says, and he pointed over, there was a Dodge Charger SRT in the in a red one there. And he goes, he said, I bought that car, that same car. I bought one like, just like it after I saw your review. And part of me is like, okay. And the other part of me is like, okay, all the Chrysler PR people are standing right there. <laughs> Bit louder, bit, bit louder. No, 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 no but, 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 but I was like, I was waiting for what is he going to say next, you know? 
<laughs> and, and I was like, uh, I, I hope you liked it. He goes, dude, I love it. It's the best power. You, everything you said was right. And I'm like, oh, thank God for that. But yeah, it's that corroboration and that validation that you get. I don't, I did, like I said, I don't think there is a better high. Yeah, brilliant. Oh, thank you so much for your time, Chad. I really appreciate it. And it's been, it's been great to learn a bit more about you and, and, and you your journey and you. what you're doing. I appreciate yeah. it. I appreciate it. All the best to you, man. And good luck with this. And yeah, keep going. And thank you. Oh, I won't stop. That's, that's, that's the plan. Shazad's journey has just started. And I mean it. When I said the purpose of his channel might just be to shed light on the amazing work he is doing for the community that is affected by Eunice. Shazad made it easy to focus on other things, not just Eulis, and his content delves into more than just Eulis. In the cars that he has reviewed and the stuff he does say is really insightful. It isn't just a flash in the pan, and I want you to know that if you want to make a name for yourself, you do really need to push. With that being said, I'm Harry, and this is the Ignition Podcast. Thank you for listening.